You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Hey, Mark Roden, will you come on up here, buddy? I just want to have you pray for our Bible study today. I know you're down with that. Put the prayer warrior. Why don't you go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 9. We're going to read it, and as we read it, Mark is going to be formulating his prayer. Because <laughs> I love you. <laughs> and uh, by the way, again, if it gets too hot for you, feel free to move into the shade. If it gets too cold, move into the heat. We have a cooler in the back with water. Any point during the service, you're just getting parched. Just go on back, grab a cup, come on back, sit down. Family service, you know, just chill, right? So uh, don't be afraid to uh, move around a little bit or to uh, get some, some refreshment uh, water back there. So chapter 9, we're going to read verse uh, 1 through 23. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, but the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who called. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he pardons. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who's resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay, from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, but that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory? Go ahead, Mark. Heavenly Father, I come before you, Lord, and just, first off, I thank you for this wonderful, beautiful day, Lord, and how we have the freedom to come out into a park like this and to preach your gospel, Lord, and, and, and not have to worry about any anybody bothering us, Lord, and, and I just pray that there are those people in the community, if they're around, that can hear us, Lord, that they'd be drawn in, Lord, as we 
are speaking in Romans, Lord, about your election. Oh, we know, Lord, that you don't wish for anyone to perish, Lord, that everyone would come to you, Lord. So even though it may be that you, you call us, Lord, that you do want us all to come to you. Just pray that you would anoint Rory and his, his teaching today, Lord, and, and bless everyone here, Lord. And I just pray that each one of you uh, will take something new home today, Lord. I pray that it's just hearing his word and, and, and let it just fall away. But I pray that you take it into your heart. Um, just kind of maul on it, Lord. Have everybody just come away with something new that they, they can apply it to their lives, Lord, and go out and reach this world for the lost. And I thank you for this day for this beautiful weather and for your word, Lord. Thank you, buddy. Got a little prophecy in that prayer there over the church. We receive it. Thank you, Mark. Well, continuing on through Romans chapter 9, again, a very controversial chapter where we explore the tension between God's uh, sovereignty and man's responsibility. Uh, Spurgeon, when asked, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? He answered, I do not need to reconcile friends. And so uh, we don't so much want to resolve the tension as we go through Romans 9, but we want to uh, embrace and explore the tension. And so just to bring a balanced approach between the two camps this morning, uh, I've got a Calvinist joke and an Arminianist joke. Calvinists kind of tend to emphasize the sovereignty of God, and the Arminianist can't tend to emphasize humans' responsibility. And I'm sure you all will think they are hilarious, because you are all theologians, and um, you have great senses of humor. Okay, so, what do you call a Presbyterian who drinks Mountain Dew? A hyper-Calvinist. Okay, <laughs> Nobody. Okay. Rich Will is a peanut here to laugh at that one. Okay. Arminianists like to tell the joke, or actually they hate the joke, that Calvins are, Calvinists are not the only ones who have a flower to describe their theology, like tulip, but the Arminianists have the daisy. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Alright, we got that out of the way. The topic today, as we've been exploring specifically verses 6 through 23, looking at God's sovereign election in uh, choosing certain people for salvation, uh, choosing certain people over others in uh, verses 6 through 13, we've read that God chose Isaac over Ishmael shows Isaac over Ishmael, and then we see even more specifically, bringing it down to the same father, the same mother, the same womb on the same day that God chose <coughs> Jacob over Esau, twin brother, Jacob chosen, Jacob preferred, Jacob selected. And so it dove into the topic of, is God just, and can God be fair in this sovereign election? And we dove in last week just looking at verses 4 through 18 in understanding that God is absolutely just, fair, and merciful in his sovereign election. And to kind of break down our section here, in verses 14 through 18, if you have a pen, you can just kind of mark in the margin of your Bible, 
that God is absolutely just, fair, and merciful, as seen in verses 14 through 18, in His sovereign mercy and wrath. He's just and fair in His sovereign mercy and wrath. Verses 19 through 21, we'll get into it today. He's just and fair even as there's the argument and outcry of the created being. And then verses 22 through 23, he's just and he's fair in this election. And we see that in his purpose behind this sovereign selection. His purpose of wrath, his purpose of mercy. And we've noted last week that any salvation whatsoever is mercy. Any salvation, if any one of you here is saved today, it's because of mercy, it's because of compassion, but it's not because of justice. Any damnation, or any hardening, or any person that is sent to hell, that is justice. That is God's justice. That's His just judgment. As we've studied through the book of Romans, that there is none innocent. No, not one. There's none who seeks after God in and of themselves. There's nobody morally strong. And so today as we dig into this main body of the text, we see God is sovereign in His pardoning and in His mercy. But he's also sovereign in man passively hardening himself. Let's just dig into verse 14 through 18 real quick. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God in this selection of Isaac over Ishmael, in this selection of Jacob over Esau? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs. In other words, it's not of works, but it's of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show you my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills he hardens. And so we looked at that section last week, but just some quick review. Douglas Moo who is uh, just a, a very well-respected commentator on the book of Romans from both camps, from the Calvinist camp and the Arminianist camp. He says, God's mercy is given to those who don't deserve it. His hardening is to those who already, because of sin, deserve judgment. Dr. Leon Morris is quoted by saying, Neither here nor anywhere else is God said to harden anyone who has not first hardened himself. And we just read about Moses there. And that God was sovereignly working behind Moses to show his name great, even through Moses' rebellion. And as you look at the account in the Exodus chapter 7 through 10, you see that God was sovereignly working in the hardening of Pharaoh, and yet Pharaoh was also hardening him, himself, and then God finally confirmed that hardening uh, and hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's a paradox, 
seems like a bit of an oxymoron. And uh, the more you study it, the more you feel like an oxymoron. Okay? Okay. Anyways. So, God hardening Pharaoh was actually an, a judicial act because of his rebellion. God had abandoned him to his own stubbornness. As Romans 1 says, he basically gave Pharaoh over to his own depravity. And so we see that, yes, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but God's sovereignty never goes on vacation. Now, how many of you have somebody that hates you? A lot of smiles out there. <laughs> I know have you ever tried to love on that person and to obey the scriptures, Romans 12, where Jesus says on the Beatitudes of blessing those that hate you? Praying for those that spitefully use you and, and treat you that way. You try to keep burning coals on people's heads, sharing your fire with them, sharing your love with them. And you've only had hatred in response. You've only had the hardening of that person uh, in response. We've seen God in the scriptures showing kindness and patience to Pharaoh, but his heart grew hard. After every plague, after every plea for repentance, Pharaoh's heart grew harder, grew harder, grew harder. And behind it, God was actively hardening as well. And that active hardening was towards a man who was already guilty, already depraved. Remember, nobody deserves to be saved. When you get feeling sorry for Pharaoh, you need to remember nobody deserves to be saved. It is our default to constantly go back to we deserve salvation, or he or she deserves mercy, deserves salvation. No, what we deserve is wrath. What we deserve is hell. The wonder in this text is not that some are saved and that others are not saved, but that anybody is saved at all. Therefore, if anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's, John Scott says. And so, in looking at that, and that was just a little review from last week, we have verse 19, and we have a response to that, this outcry of the created against the Creator. Verse 19, Paul says, You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted God's will? In other words, if God is sovereign, then how can we be blamed? The New Living Translation says, Well then, you might say, why does God blame people for not responding to him? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? Didn't Pharaoh just do what was predetermined? for him to do? Why would he have to be judged? He was just a pawn in God's plan. We say this about Judas Iscariot. Then we know the prophecies that Jesus' own familiar friend would raise his heel against Jesus and betray Jesus. And there goes Judas to collect the 30 pieces of silver and fulfill Bible prophecy. Judas seems to be a helpless victim of predestination. 
But you know what? Judas made a real voluntary choice that led to the betrayal of the Messiah. And Jesus says in Mark 14, 21, the Son of Man, that's him, he goes just as it was written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he'd never been born. Similar argument there for the Jews who were responsible for delivering Jesus up for death and taking the criminal Barabbas rather than taking the real son of the father. And in Acts 2.23, we read the scripture that says Jesus being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Do you hear sovereignty there? There was a determined purpose in God's plan. There was the foreknowledge of God. But then we see, you have taken them, taken him by lawless hands, have crucified him, and put him to death. And Peter lays the blame and the responsibility and the voluntary choice of the Jews. God's sovereignty, determining, and foreknowing the betrayal, but man's responsibility in delivering Jesus up to be killed. We see it again in Acts chapter 4, verse 27 through 28. Truly against you, this is a prayer to the Lord, truly against you and your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So we see God's sovereignty, we see man actively working but God being sovereign over it so this question is asked here that could be rephrased if I'm if I'm unable to choose God or unable to obey then why am I judged and held accountable why should the Jews be judged for delivering up Jesus by lawless hand why should Judas Iscariot be judged even though these prophecies were laid out against him well, the ability to choose God, it speaks of moral ability. Moral ability, not natural ability. Jonathan Edwards wrote about this in his book, The Freedom of the Will. And moral ability is kind of described, if I could use a picture, as if the sovereign of my house wanted me to do the dishes. Guess who the sovereign is? <laughs> If the, she's not here to defend herself. She's with children today. So, if the sovereign of my house wanted me to do the dishes, but I'm sitting on the couch in my comfort, then morally, I can't choose to do the dishes. Morally, I can't choose the dishes. I want comfort. I want luxury. I don't want the chore. But naturally, it would be as if I want to do and wash the dishes, but I'm chained to the chair. John Piper said that moral ability is not a prerequisite for accountability. The real reason that we can't choose God is because we're always choosing something else. We're choosing the couch rather than the task of the dishes. We love the darkness rather than the light. We're always rejecting the grace and the mercy that he shows us. Just as Pharaoh rejected the call to repentance and the mercy that was given there. If you 
will let my people go, then this plague won't come upon you. But Pharaoh would choose something else. In Acts chapter 7, revival is going on in the church. And as revival goes on, persecution goes on. And Philip, one of the new deacons in the church, I'm sorry, Stephen, one of the new deacons in the church, gets an opportunity to preach it. And he's preaching to the Jewish Sanhedrin. And he says to them, you are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed most of those who, uh, who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you've now become the betrayers and the murderers. And it says that as he was preaching, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed at him with their teeth. You picture that? And then down in verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one, one accord. Then they cast him out of the city and murdered him with stones. So Stephen spoke rightly to them, that they were stiff-necked and uncircumcised, resisting the Holy Spirit, just as their fathers did. And as Stephen preached an amazing message of repentance to them that they listened to 90% of, they didn't repent. They didn't respond. But they killed Stephen. We see that in this, the way that God hardens is by creating interaction where he warns them and he calls them to repentance. There's the old Puritan saying that the same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. The fault is not with the sun. It's with our own hearts. In John chapter 8, verse 48, Jesus says, But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. The more truth that is spoken, the less belief there will be, and the harder the heart gets. The cause of the hard heart is persistent, personal sin and rebellion. The Holy Spirit comes in and convicts us of our sin and points us to Jesus. In verse 20 here in Romans 9 we read, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed to him who say, uh, excuse me, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? You guys ever asked that question or have you ever heard anybody ask that why is God doing this? Why is God taking this from me? I'm a good person. That's often followed by that statement. I'm a good person. Here in verse 20, Paul begins to emphasize the distance between God and man by using analogy. He's speaking of a rebellious heart that's trying to dictate what God should do. What God should do. As Stott says, moreover, if all these questions here emphasize the gulf between the crafted object and the craftsman, do we really think it's fitting for a human being to talk back to God? We have the picture of a lump of clay and a potter. Is it fitting for a human being to talk back to God? 
How many of us say, God, I don't like the way you work, and if you want me, you need to jump through my hoops. You need to elect according to how I would elect. You need to move according to how I would move. And I ask you this morning, do you have all knowledge? Are you omniscient? Do you have all power? Are you omnipotent? Now, Paul's not censoring someone who has a sincerely perplexing question. He's just wondering about life. But he's speaking about someone who quarrels with God, who talks back to God, who answers back. Some of you have teenagers, middle schoolers, who have talked back, answered back. You know how that is. You know how frustrating that is. And in the spiritual sense, such a person manifests a reprehensible spirit of rebellion against God and a refusal to let God be God and to acknowledge His true status as creature and God creator. We need to be like Moses and keep our distance and keep off our shoes standing on holy ground. Or like Job, we need to put our hand over our mouth and confess that we tend to speak things we don't understand. In this case, the potter with the clay is the attitude of the creature assuming to be judge over the Creator. John Stott says where Job had gone wrong was in daring to contend with the Almighty to accuse Him and to attempt to correct God. We tend to do this in the issue of God's sovereignty, God's election, God's predestination. And Job would say in 33.13, why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. In 36.23 he says, who has assigned to him his way? Or to who has said, you've done this wrong, God? Any one of you want to say that to God? Being the lump of clay, speaking to the potter? Job chapter 40, verse 2, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. You know, it's just common logic that Paul lays out that the Creator has Creator rights over what he's made to do with it whatever he will. And praise God that He has certain attributes and characteristics that all of His doings are according to. All of His doings are according to grace and love and mercy, but also justice and righteousness and truth. John Piper says, be careful that you do not dictate to God what He can do. Are you good enough to dictate the goodness of God? Are you wise enough to counsel the wisdom of God? Let's look at this. Verse 21, doesn't the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? This idea of the potter and the clay, it comes out of Isaiah. Two different chapters in Isaiah. And also Jeremiah chapter 18, where the Lord takes, or the potter, picture of the Lord, takes a piece of clay that was marred and was made into another vessel that was unmarred, that seemed good for the potter to make. And if you have your Bible, or if you're using version, 
Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. 2 Timothy 2.20. You see, Paul uses this example again of the potter and the clay. It says, but in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Think about that in your house. What vessels are vessels of honor in your house? A nice vase, right? Who are we kidding? We're in Primeville. It's a vase, right? A nice vase. You know, growing up, everybody on our family ranch chewed tobacco. And almost every house had a spittoon in it. And as a little kid, I would go around playing with all my cousins. And we'd knock over Grandpa's spittoon or Dad's spittoon. And uh, we then got to go back with paper towels and sop up that. Delicious, whatever it is. So for me, that's representative of a vessel of dishonor, right? Every house has them. Vessels of honor, vessels of dishonor. But then we see, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. We had a, uh, my pastor in Lakeview, his wife took a toilet and uh, set it out in her yard and planted flowers in it. Got these beautiful flowers coming up out of the bowl and up out of the tank. And it's Lakeview, right? You can do those kinds of things. But I always remember thinking, man, Andre, props to you. You know, <laughs> you, you took a vase, right? You made a vase out of a vessel of dishonor. You made it beautiful. And that is what the Lord is able to do. Even in his sovereignty, even in his foreknowledge, He allows for what's called permission. Things that are even outside of what his original plan was. You see that when Moses would pray or Abraham would pray to God not to go and destroy Sodom or Gomorrah, but to save the righteous out of it. Charles Hodge writes, in the sovereignty that's here asserted, in the potter and the clay. It is God as moral governor and not God as creator who's brought to view. It's nowhere suggested that God has the right to create sinful beings in order to punish them, but rather that he has the right to deal with sinful beings who, according to his good pleasure, either, either to pardon or to punish. Thirdly, this morning, and we're going to finish up here soon, we see that God is absolutely just and merciful and right in His sovereign election through the purpose of this election. In verses 22 and 23, what if God, wanting to show His wrath and make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In other words, what if God's character is shown in his sovereign choice? First of all, in his wrath. God's wrath is good. In God's wrath, he demonstrates the seriousness of evil and of sin. It is essential to who he is as a just God. That he pours out wrath against those who are involved in sex trafficking, 
or those who have raped, or those who have lied or cheated or stealed or been covetous in their heart, or have lusted after a woman in their heart. God is just in His wrath. And the doctrine of hell teaches us that it's God's place of total justice for all eternity. It teaches us that God doesn't wink at sin. As Romans 1.18 says, the wrath of God is real, revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, we see that it's in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart that you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God is absolutely just and fair and merciful and right in His wrath, in His sovereign choice for His wrath, but also in His patience. We see in verse 22, in His patience, God should have wiped us out. I'm sorry, we see the, uh, yeah, the patience there. In verse uh, 20 through how, 22, how he endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath. In his patience, he is right and justice. God's wick is the longest wick on a stick of dynamite. It just burns and it burns and it burns. And when you think there should be an explosion, when you think that God should judge America or apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. The wick still burns. The fuse still burns. He allows unrepentant people to continue. Every day he's patient. He waits and he waits so that we don't think. Or excuse me. Every day he's patient. He waits and he, and he waits. And, and we think that we're not guilty in that. Numbers speaks of this long-suffering, this patience of God, chapter 14, verse 18. Peter speaks of this patience, and that the long-suffering of God is salvation. Now we see that this patience and this long-suffering, that it's towards these vessels of wrath, verse 22, that are prepared for destruction. And there are some who take this verse to mean that God has elected certain people to go to hell. From the very beginning, He chose people to go to hell. It's the position called supralapsarianism. Okay, have you tuned out yet? Because of that word, that just shut you down, baby. Supralapsarianism, it's also known as double predestination. It's also known as reprobation. That God chose people from before the foundation of the world, he chose people to go to hell. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-9, through 9, it speaks this to God's patience. He says, Beloved, don't forget this one thing. That to the Lord one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. The Lord's not slack concerning his promise, and some count slackness. And then Peter says this, He's long-suffering towards you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants all men to come to repentance. 
that if anyone would believe on Him, they would not perish, but have everlasting life. The doctrine of reprobation, it gets very deep, it gets very complex. Kenneth Keithley said that John Calvin held to this double predestination. That in superlapsarianism, God's decision to elect and to reprobate is primary. It's essential to understanding superlapsarianism is the distinction it makes between reprobation and damnation. Reprobation is God's rejection of an individual versus damnation, which is God's judgment upon that person for his sins. And you guys are sensible people, really trying to bring a balance and not necessarily condemn either approach. You guys have Bibles I want you guys to read too. It's a controversial issue. Some people here hold to one side, some hold to another, but within reprobation, the reprobate becomes a sinner because God has rejected him. God rejected certain ones and then decreed the fall in order to actualize his disfavor toward them. John Calvin made this clear when he declared that the highest cause of reprobation is not sin, but bare and simple pleasure of God. Okay? Now, what this does is it places superlapsarianism or reprobation or God choosing people specifically for hell from the beginning of time to say that God is the author of sin. And even the canon of Dort in early church history declared that the notion that God is the author of sin in any way at all is a blasphemous thought. And the Westminster Confession makes a similar declaration. In Calvin's day, there was a physician in Geneva whose name was Volsic, and he objected to Calvin's teachings on predestination, double predestination, on the grounds that it impugned the character of God. Within double predestination, there's no room for permission. And here's what permission is. Permission is the decision by God to allow something other than himself to exist. It's the uh, crucial concept to the moderate Calvinists. Not the hyper-Calvinists, but the moderate, moderate Calvinists. They do understand and embrace the notion of permission. That God did not cause the fall but rather he allowed it. You see the permission there? God not causing the fall, but allowing the fall. God does not predestine the reprobate to hell, but he permits the unbeliever to go his own way. And with the knowledge of that permission, you're able to reconcile kind of the other spectrum of the verses. That, like 1 Timothy 2, 4, it says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Or Matthew 25, 41, that he will say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Where was What was hell prepared for? For people or for the devil and his angels? Now, on the other camp, from the uh, the uh, double predestination camp, you have the Arminianist camp. And they have problems as well in their theology. 
Arminianism solves the problem of reprobation by presenting God's decision concerning individuals as something entirely passive. Okay? God decrees to elect the church as a corporal body, corporate body of the Arminianist belief. And those individuals who choose Christ are then viewed as the elect. This is a, a position that I just once held until looking at the scriptures and understanding, no, there's, God's much more active in his election. God's much more active in his electing Isaac over Ishmael or Jacob over Esau. He's not passive in election. In this respect, the Arminians view God's decree as the mere ratification of human choices. But the Bible presents God's electing decision as something much more active and decisive, Kenneth Keithley says. The good news of the gospel, as we work through and wade through the mystery, and sometimes it's like wading through quicksand, I know. Like, you have to choose the 95 degree day to go through this tough topic? Yes, I did. We're working through the word of God. The good news of the gospel is that vessels of wrath, by the grace of God, can become vessels of mercy. We have the word prepare in verse 22, that these vessels of wrath are prepared for wrath. And then in verse 23, we have the word prepare again, that there's vessels of mercy prepared for glory. And an interesting note for you today is that the word prepare in verse 22 and the word prepare in verse 23 are two different words. It's very important as we read this and we say it seems in reading this that God is, you know, from the beginning of time, He's created people for hell. That's why we've got to be scholars and students and dive into the text and the original language and what was being written here. And we see that the prepare in verse 22 is the Greek word katartizo, and the tense that it's in is in the perfect passive participle verb. Amen? Yeah. Exciting, I know. It's important. Okay? This is important. Because this perfect passive participle verb, it means completing thoroughly Repairing, you have an ing at the end of every word here, adjusting, ripening, or fitting. And with that tense, what you see in verse 22 is that man is passively preparing himself for destruction by suppressing the truth of God, Romans 1.18. God has warned and warned and waited, and these people are destined for wrath. But it's in more of a passive way that they are keeping upon themselves. Now, verse 23, we have the vessels of mercy that are being prepared beforehand for glory, for an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. The word prepared in verse 23, and we are almost done, I promise. I think it's hard to listen to. Think how easy it is to teach. <laughs> okay? It's fun, actually. This is good, man. It's good to go in deep. Okay, so this word prepared in verse 23, it's the word proetomizo. 
okay? And it is in the aorist active indicative tense, okay? And this means the past action of God. That means that he has fit up in advance. He has ordained before. He has prepared for the vessels of mercy and their inheritance. As Damien Kyle said, God prepares the elect for glory and sinners prepare themselves for judgment. And the glory of His grace will shine all the more brightly against the somber background of His wrath. John chapter 6 verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Do you hear the balance and the tension there? All who the Father gives me, does that emphasize man's responsibility or God's sovereignty? All who the Father gives me, God's sovereignty. Right? That they will come to me. Man's responsibility. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. J.I. Packer says, The Bible never says that a sinner never misses heaven because they are not elect, but because they will not repent and believe. Ezekiel tells us that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Don't blame God if He gives you what you want today. You want separation from God? You don't want to be obedient to Him? You won't want to have relationship? That's on you. You're going to rebel against God as He calls you to be forgiven of your sins and to be washed clean and to obtain mercy and eternal life in heaven? resisting his calling this morning like Pharaoh resisted him. You're keeping up for yourself judgment and don't blame God for that. Against the backdrop of our wickedness, he shows mercy to us. At the cross, we have both mercy and justice. And as you hear the good news of the gospel today, that at the cross he showed his wrath, where he dealt with sin radically upon his own son. He dealt with the penalty, and that penalty was met out against his son Jesus. But also at the cross he showed compassion and mercy and love. And he was under no obligation to do it, but he did it for you and I. In conclusion today, we have all acted as Pharaoh. We have all made ourselves our own gods. We've done things our way rather than God's way. We have exchanged God's glory for temporal things, people, places, things, activities, hobbies. And it's in Jesus that we see true justice. It's in Jesus that we see true mercy. So turn to Jesus today. If you hear his voice, calling you to be a Christian, calling you to be forgiven of sin, calling you to be one of God's children. Don't turn from Him. Hebrews tells us in chapter 3, verse 7, that today if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any one of you a heart of unbelief, an evil heart of unbelief, 
and departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any one of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So who knows if for such a time as this, God called you to the park. Maybe you came today just because we're in the park. Some church is meeting down in the park and there's a cheap dollar barbecue down there. God's called you down here to hear that you are not good. You are not righteous. You are not innocent. You are depraved and you are wicked and every thought of your heart is evil continually. But God, but God, while you were still without strength, but God, while you were his enemy, but God sent his one and only son to offer up his life as a ransom for your sins. That the debt in your account might be paid by his precious blood. That you might be redeemed to God. Reconciled. Have relationship with God restored. Forgiven of sins. Able to know God now. And hear God. And be a friend of God. And have the peace. And the protection. Of God once again. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus today. And you will be saved. Charles Spurgeon said, Your damnation is your own election, not God's. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Don't choose damnation. Choose mercy. Choose everlasting life. It's not of Him who wills, nor of Him that runs, but of God who shows mercy. And yet we also have Revelation chapter 22 verse 17, that let him who thirsts come, and whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Heather, why don't you come on up to close us in song. And if you're here today, and you hear about Jesus, and you're thirsty today, you're thirsty for everlasting life, you're thirsty for forgiveness, you're thirsty for mercy, you're thirsty for friendship with God, you're thirsty for adventure for Him and to be used in His kingdom. If you're thirsty today, come and take the water of life freely. Charles Spurgeon concluded his sermon on the subject. He says, come and drink, sinner. God wills it. Trust Jesus. God wills it. If you will it, that is the sign that God wills it. Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as sinners humbly stoop to drink from the flowing crystal which streams from the sacred fountain which Jesus opened for his people. Let it be said in heaven, God's will is done. Hallelujah, hallelujah. It's not of him that wills, nor of him who runs, but God that shows mercy. Yet whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. And maybe for the first time today, you'll come and take of the water of life freely. We're going to close with communion, where we have a cup with a little bit of grape juice in it. And Jesus says to take this cup. If you believe in me, you take this cup and you drink and you remember my blood that was shed so that your blood wouldn't have to be shed. And you take this bread and you eat 
And you remember my body that was stripped and whipped and pierced and bruised and crushed and beaten so that your body, for your sin, wouldn't have to be bruised and beat and whipped and stripped. And you can come today and you can take and you can drink of the forgiveness and the mercy that's in Jesus. Some of you it will be for the first time today. And we invite you to do so with us. Let's worship the Lord in His greatness and in His sovereignty. Let's pray. Let's stand. Lord Jesus, we do worship You. We say like Paul that the depths of Your wisdom and power are beyond us. Your judgments are unsearchable. Your ways are past finding out. Lord Jesus, I pray that by Your Spirit You would take the minds of those who heard the message and that You would just make them able to comprehend and understand. And Lord, most of all, that you show sinners that they are in desperate need of forgiveness and that, Jesus, you've made the way available. Thank you for your blood that was shed. Thank you for your body that was broken. That even we, the reprobates, could become vessels of mercy in your house useful for every good work. For your glory, by your initiation, Lord, we love you because you first loved us. We respond to you because you first chose us. All the glory belongs to you. In your awesome name. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.